Fritz as he shares with us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you be glorified in this place and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good evening. In chapter 3, Solomon concluded that life was anything but monotonous. For we do not know what problems may come to us at any given day. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what the day may bring forth. And that is so true. You know, uh, we were a young church, thriving and on fire for the Lord, working, and may I add, under construction, trying to get it built and done and felt unstoppable. And you know, the Lord was blessing the church and adding to the church daily as he saw fit. And uh, then one day Brent had a terrible stomach pain and started to eat Tums by the handful. You know, by our encouragement, we told Brent he needed to go see a doctor. And uh, reluctantly he went. But they couldn't find anything wrong with him. And he went again. Still couldn't find anything wrong with him. Finally, they concluded that it had to be his gallbladder, so they took it out. They didn't find anything wrong with the gallbladder, but they didn't tell him that. They said, you should be fine. The pain in his stomach still persisted. And uh, after months and months of... Brent acting as though he was okay, but confiding to us that he was not doing well at all. Marilee couldn't take it anymore and took him to see a specialist up in, up in Salt Lake City. And they concluded that he did have cancer. And it seemed the next minute he was gone. I know there was months of suffering, but it just seemed like, poof, our friend was gone. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. Amen. We need to treasure each day as though it could be our very last. By a show of hands, how many have traveled by plane? Pretty much everybody. Can you imagine if you would, if the captain came on the intercom and said, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's your captain speaking. There's no cause of alarm, but I felt you should know. For the past three hours, we have been flying without the benefit of radio, compass, radar, or any navigational gear due to the breakdown of 32 components. That means in a broader sense of the word, we are lost. And we are not sure what direction we are headed, but let me assure you, on the brighter side of things, 
I believe we are making excellent time. In fact, there's a good chance we're ahead of schedule. It wouldn't be very reassuring, would you? Uh, In chapter 4, the preacher takes an honest look at life under the sun to see the tears of mankind that had lost its way. It's sort of like Solomon was saying, listen, I know I've ran this plane off track, but my heart's desire to get us back on track. He looks and sees that life lived without God ultimately brings exploitation, frustration, and loneliness. We can put on a good face, Amid laughter and smiles and beneath it all, there's a veil of tears. I couldn't help but think of Smokey Robinson singing, Tears of a Clown, when no one else is around. For so many people, life is seemingly a lottery game of chance, and we all appear to be victims of either a good roll of the dice or a bad roll of the dice. But under midst it all, God is in control. But sometimes we feel like we're the subject of which way the wind blows. There was a Chinese philosopher, Fan Chen, wrote, Human life may be likened to the leaves on yonder tree. The wind blows down the flowers in which some are scattered on beautiful decorated mats and cushions, while others are blown over the fence and dropping on dung heap. Through the course of life, tears are shed. And Solomon focuses on some of those reasons why. Starting at verse 1, he goes, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed. But they have no comforter. On the side of these, their oppressors, there is power. But they have no comforter. It is as though Solomon is looking in his own courtyard and he's observing trial being conducted and saw the innocent being oppressed by hungry, power-hungry officials and their victims wept, but their tears did no good. No one stood with them to comfort them. Solomon seemed to be having an out-of-body experience. And the truth is, man has no ability to govern itself. We are all liars, cheats, thieves, and sinners. We are incapable of being an architect of our own happiness. You need a government that relies on God to govern them in the affairs of the people. And Solomon... This was his job, to govern the people wisely. Solomon, nonetheless, was sincerely grieved to see the oppressed. They had no comforter. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus when he came and he went into the synagogue and they handed him the book of Isaiah. This is from Luke chapter 4. You could turn with me if you want to. 
Starting at verse 16, this is what, what happens in the synagogue. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as he custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty of the captives, and recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. See, I may say that I understand when I talk and I hear about the oppressed. Because I see true oppression on TV. And I see real suffering in the world. But I have to be honest with you. I live in America. And it is so easy for me to turn the dial. And I may get a tear in my eye. And I may feel sadness. But I haven't really experienced oppression that's going on in the world. I've never held a baby in my arms as it dies from starvation. And we have a pastor in Iran right now. We have no idea where he's at. And he went there knowing fully well what he, what he was up against. But his heart said go. But that doesn't take away from the mother, the, the wife and the children that are here worrying about their husband and their father. We need to, have, we need to be moved with compassion and respond. How do we do that? Speak out. So long the church has been silent and said nothing. We need to call our congressmen, our leaders. We need to put our name on petitions. If you see the hunger, hungry, feed them. If you see those without clothing, clothe them. But so often the church does nothing. Jesus saw the multitude gathered and saw that they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. And what did Jesus do? He gave them spiritual food. And as the evening drew to a close, he told the disciples, set them down. You feed them. And he took a few loaves and a few fish and he fed the multitude. Robert Burns said, Man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. Even when a government takes God out, God still governs. Amen? You see, we have the answer, you and I. We know the true comforter. And this is what Jesus was saying when he stood in the synagogue. He says, I have come. And this is what I've come to proclaim. And you and I know the one who saves. 
the one who heals. And we need to reach out with this truth. A lot of times we sit and we're afraid that we may be rejected. But we have a a world that needs a comforter. Now verse 2 goes... Therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. The preacher, the most intelligent of all men, found no comfort in this world of oppression. Death to him seemed like the better option. And to Solomon, his cynicism touches bottom as he observes that though the dead are better off, the unborn are better still. But the unborn have never had to endure that ghastly mockery of happiness called life. And Solomon's outbursts, if all life can bring is oppression... It is better not to have been born at all. I want you to know that this is not the last word of Solomon concerning the value of life. He wrote in chapter 9, For all the living there is hope. Verse 4 goes, Again, I saw that for all the toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This is also vanity and grasping for the wind. Our ambitions can be healthy and rewarding if our motive is right. But most of the time they're not. If they're done before the Lord. Often they are easily fed by envy of others. People speak of healthy ambitions and competition but you look at the lying and the cheating and the doping that goes on in our sporting events today and it's it's so bad you have uh, Armstrong what's his name Lance Armstrong what what a mockery of the sport and and same thing in our in our Olympic Games, where so many have had to put down their, give back all their awards. It's just a mockery. In Proverbs 14, this is what Solomon said. A sound heart is is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. And this is really true. And it is vanity and grasping at the wind. The Bible gives us several examples of men driven by envy. Ahab had a kingdom, but killed for a vineyard. Solomon's father David had many wives and concubines, yet stole another man's wife. And to cover up his sin, had the man murdered. Envy is poisonous and is a killer, especially to our spiritual lives. Gore Vidal was brutally frank when he said, Whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. 
And that shouldn't be so for the church. We should rejoice in each other's successes. But a lot of times that isn't so. We hate to see someone succeed. But we should rejoice and be happy for our brother. And what makes it more frustrating is what we find in verse 5. The fool folds his hand and consumes his flesh. Here's a dramatic contrast between the verse that succeeds it and a springboard to the verse that follows. The folding of the hands with a traditional saying describing what we call today as a dropout or a couch potato. This is what Solomon wrote in Proverbs. Proverbs 24 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. But Solomon was more brutally frank than this when he described it as self-cannibalism. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. I want to read the whole thing to you. This is from uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He goes, But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourself know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with order and toil night and day, and we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but we make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. As for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And I thought when I read that, I thought, you know... Paul was kind of harsh. But not really. Because hunger is a great motivator. And I think we run into that area where we become enablers to those that are lazy. And we justify it by being spiritual. This verse should be written and posted on some of the walls of our social services buildings. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. I think it's gotten so out of hand that we've enabled people in America to sit on their couches and play video games.
The preacher now throws in a balancing factor in verse 6 where he goes, Better a handful for quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. In between excessive possessions, man's laziness and the power of envy to destroy, we find a balance virtually impossible to achieve in ourselves. The truth is, with fallen man, just a little more. Just a little more. There's a man that invented an ingenious cup that could be filled within an inch below the brim. Any attempt to add any water resulted in the loss of the whole cup of water through a hole in the bottom. And everyone who tried it got wet trousers. Because it's just a little more. Just got to put a little more in the cup. For we're never satisfied with just enough. While those around working themselves into a frenzy, the wise man's sentiments were better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. There's a man named H.C. Uh, Leopold said it this way, Rather would I have my ease, though I possess but a little, though acquire more and have all the vexation that goes with it. In verse 7 and 8, he goes on to say, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, without compassion, he has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. I believe Solomon puts himself in the shoes of a lonely man. Or maybe he isn't. See, he had about a thousand wives. Maybe he was the loneliest man of all. I don't think so. <laughs> you don't think so, huh, John? I don't know. I would run for cover. <laughs> Yet for this man, there was no end of all his labors. He is consumed by his work. And I see that in Solomon. There are those who have achieved great things, yet they've lost it all. They've lost their friends and lost family. And I know you, some of you know some like that. He is left asking, for whom do I toil? Success is meaningless unless it, when it becomes all-consuming. I've seen so many consumed by hobbies, self-interest, to the extent where they have lost family and pushed them aside. Think of the many politicians and businessmen who rise to the top of their profession only to realize that they have lost family and friends in their pursuit of happiness. And he looks back and asks, For whom do I toil? Verse 9 goes on to say, 
two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Solomon highlights the effects of such loneliness and contrasts it to the joys of togetherness and fellowship. Two are better than one. Not only does a friend help carry the load, but sometimes there's instances where a man can't do it alone. An ancient Jewish proverb goes, A friendless man is like the left hand deprived of the right. Just as another helps in the labor, success is also something to be shared. A moment of triumph, we instinctively turn to another to share the moment. As two are better than one, this also is true in times of difficulty and tragedy. George Eliot described a best friend as a wellspring in the wilderness. If you fall, how wonderful to have a friend help you up. Even more when you spiritually fall, to have a friend there to pick you up. And I've seen it over and over again with gentleness and meekness and fear. Have a brother pick one up. In Galatians, this is what Paul said. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritually restore such a one in a, in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How grateful we should be to have Christian friends and brothers to help us up. And to be honest with you, with this house that we got, I just couldn't imagine doing it alone. I've had to call on a few friends to help me out. Hi, Jason. <laughs> no, but to be honest with you, sometimes it's just simple encouragement. The preacher goes on to speak of the warmth of human relationships in verse 11. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? I believe this is a reference to, to marriage. But I did make note that travelers often slept together just to keep alive in that part of the country. It sounds weird, but you know, we got a men's retreat coming up. And we only have room for 40, and I think we've over, already booked 60 or more. We're going to keep warm. <laughs> it's survival of the fittest, gang, I tell you. The snorers over here, the, cold, the people with the cold feet over here. <laughs> What's that? I, I'm, a, I'm a cover puller. Joni has the cold feet. <laughs> 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 
But the truth is, towards the end of uh, his life, Solomon's father David slept with the virgin Abishag simply for the warmth of her body. But the point is simply that there are pleasures and benefits of companionship and socializing that are unknowable to those that sleep alone. Unless she has cold-footed blanket puller. And of course, he's a snorer. (laughs) In verse 12 it goes, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. His advice is, one should never travel alone. Especially in those days, it was advisable to have a companion with you. Lone travelers were easy prey and from robbers and thieves. The mention of a threefold cord reminds me of the strength of fellowship in the body of Christ. That when we go to witness, how much better it is that two go together. A strong rope is always a threefold cord. If one companion is advisable, so much better to have two. And it reminds me of when the two travelers on the road to Emmaus were joined by a third. And this is what happened. So it was while they converted and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus also said to his disciples, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. There is strength in numbers, especially when Jesus is in our midst. Amen? Verse 13 goes, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will admonish no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and grasping at the wind. Folly and vanity of life are not confined to us and peasants alone. They are even found in palaces of kings. I believe Solomon is telling his own story here. Because he was old and he's seen those that were coming up to take his place. Maybe Solomon was telling, remembering when he was a young, wise kid and looking forward to being king. This story teaches us two truths. The instability of political power and the frickleness of popularity. Consider what the story says. The young man was born poor, but he became rich. The old king was rich, but he didn't make him wise. So he might just as well have been poor. The young man was in prison, 
but he was set free and took the throne. The old king was in prison in his stupidity and lost the throne. The moral of the story is wealth and position are no guarantee of success. And poverty and failure are no barriers to achievement and success. And the story goes on in verse 16. For there was no end of all the people over whom he had made king, yet those who come after will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping at the wind. His popularity didn't last. And it never does. Then the younger generation grows up around him and rejects him. The new crowd deposed the king for a new and better improved. They did not rejoice in him any longer. I read a story about Oliver Cromwell who took the British throne away from Charles I and established the Commonwealth. He said to a friend as the crowds were cheering around him, Do not trust to the cheering, for those persons would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. Cromwell understood the crowd mentality. Once again, Solomon drew the same conclusion. It is all vanity and grasping to the wind. No matter where Solomon went, he learned an important lesson from the Lord. When he looked up, he saw God in control and on his throne. When he looked within, he saw that that man was made with eternity in his heart. And God would make all things beautiful in their time. When he looked ahead, he saw the last enemy, death. When he looked around, he understood the complex and difficult and hard to understand. One thing is for sure, no matter where you look, you see trials and troubles. And people who could use some encouragement. I know you encourage me. And uh, I hope I encourage some of you. And there's strength in the power of Christ. We need that from one another. We need to encourage one another. And we need to pray for one another daily. However, Solomon was not cynical about life. Nowhere does he say to give up or retreat. Life does not stand still. Life comes at, a, at us full speed. And I got this from Chuck Smith. He said, Solomon realized how soon people forget you. No matter how successful you are, the next generation will forget this generation so quickly. Life is a rut. You don't make a lasting impact on this world and on your posterity. God is the one who can give eternal value to what we do and to who we are. And it's really true. And it was really true with Solomon. But I think Solomon looked at his life and understood 
I'm just going to be forgotten. But God, through his word, we're learning about Solomon tonight. And Jesus taught about Solomon. Solomon said, Life is a gift given by God and to us to enjoy to the fullest. A husband and wife decided to get in shape, so they mapped out a two-mile route down a country road. One mile out, then they would be obligated to walk one mile home again. They thought this was a good start and something they could stick with. So they set out on their walk, and at the end of the road, as they were getting ready to turn around and head back, the husband turned to the wife and said, How are you doing? Are you okay? Do you think you can make it back? She said, Sure, I'm fine. He said, Good. Could you go back, get the car, come back and get me? I'm done. <laughs> he walked a mile. You've got to give him that. You know, I couldn't help but think we all start out to run our race with the Lord. And we all set out to finish our race. And we all set out to walk with God and to follow Jesus with all that we are. And we all set out to pursue Him and seek Him with our whole heart. I know Solomon did, and his heart was led away by the things of this world. And if Solomon could speak to us, he would say, follow, finish the race. We need to finish our race as to win. Because I've watched in the church so many start off so strong and run hard, and you think, wow, on fire. Just to see them fall on the wayside in a ditch and never finish the race. 87% of people that own running shoes never run. I wonder how many people that own Bibles never walk. The Bible sits there, and maybe every six months they dust it off. And they, but they know it's there, but they never truly walk with God. If this chapter teaches me anything, it's that we need one another. We need fellowship. Two are better than one. And three is better than two. When Jesus is in our midst. With Christ before us, who can be against us? Amen? Let's all stand. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, thank you for this time, Lord, in your word. Lord, I just thank you uh, for your Holy Spirit, Lord, and your guiding. Lord, and uh, Lord, I look forward to uh, great things, Lord, that you're going to do through your church. Lord, I just uh, thank you for the wisdom of Solomon, Lord, uh, that we would take his... Uh, guiding words, Lord, and place it to our heart, place it to our life. Lord, that we wouldn't, wouldn't be foolish, but wise. Lord, that we would uh, 
take this gift that God has given us, Lord, and that, that we would uh, live it to the fullest. Lord, that you would always be before us, guiding and leading us, Lord. Lord, I just uh, lift up this uh, men's retreat, Lord, to you, Lord, that the men would be fed and, and encouraged and come back new and on fire for you. Help us to run this race you've set before us, Lord, that we would run it with purpose, Lord, that we would, wouldn't be spectators, but we would be in the game. Lord, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. God is able, He will never fail, He is almighty God, greater than all we see, greater than all we ask, He has done great things, lifted up, defeated the grave, rest alive, our God in his name we overcome for the Lord our God is able God is with us God is on our side will make a way far above all we know far above all we hold he has done great things lifted up he defeated the grave praise the life our God is able in his name we overcome God is with us, He will go before, He will never leave us, He will never leave us, God is for us, He has open arms, He will never fail us, He will never fail us, lifted up, we defeated the grave. Rest alive, our God is able. In His name, we overcome. For the Lord, our God is able. Rip it up, 
just thank you. You never fail us. Lord, you go before us. Lord, you're guiding and leading us all the way. Lord, even though this world may fail and, and we may be discouraged, Lord, you are lifting us up. Lord, you defeated the grave. Lord, we just thank you. You are glorious and good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.